Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice. With me is my co-host, Ellie Mistal. I realized today that I don't have any jacket that's appropriate for this kind of weather. Hmm. It's kind of high 50s, low 60s. I've got a parka, you know, I've got sweaters, but I don't have that like flappy trench coat thing that I kind of need right now for like these like three weeks. It's possible also that uh, you don't need a coat and you're just kind of a whiner because it's not coat weather. Okay, says the man from Iowa or Idaho or whatever upper Midwestern hellhole you're from. Out here in civilization, people sometimes wear coats in this weather. I'm just saying. I don't have one, though. Yeah. No. No, it's uh, lovely outside. Uh, It's rain. It's kind of misty, but it's uh, If anybody would like to advertise on this podcast, I do need a coat. so, So there's that. I mean, well. So, so your your logic is you want people who make coats to advertise here and comp you a coat. I was literally listening to the Met game the other night, mm-hmm. and and the announcer um, was talking about how his binoculars weren't good anymore. And like the next Met game, he had gotten new binoculars. He, oh, he was gifted new binoculars. Yeah. So, right. And I mean, what are we doing this show for if it's not to? you know, pilfer things from <laughs> potential sponsors. Yeah. No, I mean, that's that's fair. I mean, that's why people yeah. do everything. My my temperature is not what I'm grinding my gears about today, though. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So this morning, the reason why I was actually out this morning as opposed to in my lovely climate-controlled house, um, I was on the uh, Brian Lair show this morning, um, which you should check out. Which by that he means last week. Yes, by the time you hear this, <laughs> it'll be last week. Um, but check out Brian Lehrer generally anyway. It's a good show. Anyway, I was on, and we were talking about Cosby, Bill Cosby. Um, who, oh, not not Tom Cosby. Not Tom Cosby. Okay, good. I just wanted to make sure because there's a lot of <laughs> possibility for confusion. He is uh, currently on trial uh, for allegedly uh, sexually assaulting one woman. Um, he is not on trial for allegedly sexually assaulting 40 odd women um, as they are barred by statute. Um, but the issue that we were talking about really is, a, is something that bothers me. Cosby's attorneys mainly, and, and you know, so at some level him and, and his daughter, have really tried to make a racial angle um, out of his prosecution. They're kind of saying that this is happening to him um, because of race. And as a black person who kind of talks and thinks deeply about how racism affects people, I find this argument really offensive. <laughs> um, Racism did not make Bill Cosby allegedly uh, sexually assault 40 women, okay? that Racism did not do that to him, right? The conspiracy theories are – they didn't all sit around in a cabal and think about how to bring down a funny black man. Dave Chappelle is not next, all right? That's not what's going on. Now, there are some racial issues – to be concerned about. For instance, I think that the Cosby trial shows that if you're a white man who's accused of sexually assaulting a boatload of women, you can still be president. Mm-hmm. If you're a black man accused of the same thing, you're not fit to sell jello. That's a fair point. That's that's a racial disparity right there, right? But the way to fix that is not to let the black man skate. It's to hold the white man 
accountable for his actions. And so the people on Cosby's team, some of the people within the community who are really trumping up um, the racial angle here, what about Woody Allen? What about Erwin Polanski? Yeah, those are bad guys too. We should go get them. That, that, doesn't, that has nothing to do with whether or not Bill Cosby did or did not commit this particular crime that he's charged with and all of the other crimes that have come out. Right. Well, I mean, wouldn't you say that the, the concern about race specifically in the context of the Cosby trial is less, oh, he's being blamed because of race, but that the traditional burdens of proof are being more sullied because of that, that people are more likely to say of insert white person here he's accused of all these things people are willing to make those excuses whereas there's a rush to judgment due to a series of pervasive largely racist tropes throughout american history that black men hypersexualized beings as they've been constructed by folks and that stuff is playing into the ways in which there's a rush to judgment isn't that more the concern Rush to judgment. People have been accusing this man twenty years of right. doing this stuff, and nobody was judging him. Right? I, 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 I. Right, but his point. lawyers are concerned about a rush to judgment. Right, right. Uh, look, we're talking I, about we're talking about lawyers, not we're thinking like a lawyer, not <laughs> the opposite. Yeah, his lawyers are concerned, and this is the other reason why they're playing the race angle, right? Because his lawyers understand that they need to win this not only in a court of law, but also in a court of public opinion. Because if Cosby was just kind of willing to accept that he was losing in the court of public opinion he would have taken the uh, he would have taken the white way out of this which would be to go to switzerland by now right like he has the means and the opportunity to go to switzerland or ecuador or wherever the hell it is that you go to um when you're accused of sexual assault and you don't want to face the music right mm -hmm. um cosby obviously still thinks that there's a chance for him to win in the court of public opinion and that's why his lawyers are pushing the racial angle because it's only through that that after the trial whatever happens in the trial look it's a he said she said it's going to be a hard case um for the prosecution to win but whatever happens in the courtroom his lawyers want at least some number of black people to think like, well, you know, that was 10 white people and two black people in the jury. What was he going to, they want that to help him later, um, right. which is also offensive to me. I mean, I also, in addition to the earlier issue, I brought up another race element of this that doesn't necessarily help or hurt Cosby himself, but a racial element to this that has troubled me as it's gone on has been the the kind of cottage side industry of people rushing to newspapers to write their hot take that the whole problem here is that we shouldn't have any statute of limitations for rape. Uh, I know there's been a few op-eds about that, and I've been kind of quick to say there are a lot of states that do not have statutes of limitations nearly long enough. There's some state in the deep south that has like a one year. That's absurd. Right. That said, oh my God. You are completely oblivious to the ways in which these crimes can act out and be taken advantage of if you think that getting rid of all statutes of limitations is a good idea. There's way too many instances of false identifications. Evidence degradation. Evidence de degradation. But, but also just there's a lot of racial animus that builds into this because of preconceived notions and bad piss poor narratives that support racist ideas that are more likely to be problematic the more years you go away from a problem and I, that 
I totally, that's what concerns me. I totally agree with that, and I, and I know that you you also would agree with me on this caveat that the corrective measure here that we need is to make it a lot easier and a lot more palatable for people to come forward with these allegations in real time as they're happening and have some hope that there will be investigation and prosecution on their behalf, right? Because the reason why we are in a situation where these allegations are coming out 30, 40, 50 years, not 50, 30, 40 years later in some cases is because these women did not feel like they could allege these things back in the 70s, and they probably weren't wrong. Yeah. Um, and that's really the, the problem is not with the statute. It is, as usual with me, it is with the enforcement. It is with the police. It is with the prosecutors, not the statute. Oh, you mean the way in which America systematically re-victimizes victims is a bad thing? Yeah. Who knew? Yeah, who knew? yeah I, th- uh, I thought you would agree with that. Yeah. No, uh, absolutely. So, okay, so we've gone on for a few minutes now. So why don't we take a break now, and we'll be back to talk about law schools, and more importantly, what the best law school in the country is, at least according to us. Rankings! All right. Rankings after we come back. I bet you didn't think about running a business when you were in law school, but now that you have your own practice, you're constantly looking for tips on marketing, accounting, practice management, and so much more. I'm Christopher Anderson, and you can get expert business advice on my podcast, The Unbillable Hour, found on LegalTalkNetwork.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So... Above the Law does a ranking system every year. Much like U.S. News for years ranked law schools, we didn't necessarily think that the way they ranked law schools were all that good, so we came up with our own set of rankings. And guess what? It's that magical time of year again when we release our rankings. Our rankings are most likely the second most well-read law school rankings in the country. That's a little bit like saying that we're the tallest midget, but you know what? We are the tallest goddamn midget. Um, in the rankings universe. I'm not sure you can use the M word anymore. I'm not positive, but like that for a while that was Oh. For a while I thought that was a thing. But you know what? That's that's a good point. Like, is that still a thing? Words shift a lot. There's a good episode of Lexicon Valley about this. Like these things get reappropriated and change a lot. Um, depending on what our lawyers say, we are the tallest little people um in the rankings business. <laughs> yeah. That, Let's yeah, the smartest hillbilly in hillbilly town. How about that? Oh, wait, that's probably a problem, too. Anyway, so yeah, out of this before I get fired. Uh, uh, if, if it hasn't happened yet, like, have you listened to our show? If it hasn't happened yet, we're fine. We're, we're all clear. Um, so we brought on today to discuss the unveiling of our own rankings, our director of research, Brian Dalton here. Hey, Joe. Hey, Ellie. Hello, Internet. Yeah. So welcome to the show. So we've been on before to talk about our rankings. We're going to talk about them again mm-hmm. this year. I don't know. Where do you want to start with this, Ellie? Do you want to talk about the top or yeah. do you want to work our way up to the no, top? Let's start right at the top because we got to change at the top. But do you want to start at the top at number one or do you want to start at 10 and like like David Letterman this and like work backwards? No, I think it's more exciting to start right with one. All right. All right. So who's number one this year, Brian? Uh, the number one law school in the 2017 above the law rankings is Stanford. Ooh. I would like to point out that this is the fact that our rankings can spit out Stanford really shows the objectivity of our rankings because if there's one of the top schools that I can't stand, it's Stanford mm. because they are the top school that did not admit me. Ah, interesting. It always bends back to Ellie some <laughs> one way or another. 
It's unbelievable. It isn't is, it? but it's it's like a superpower. It's it's like this weird gravitational yeah. pull that brings in every possible idea to be yeah. about him. How is Stanford? And, and so Yale's two this year. Yale is three. Dun dun dun. <laughs> so Stanford's one. Yale's how? Do, Harvard's two. Chicago is two. Did Trump win in this office as well? <laughs> Trump is four, the, the, and Harvard is five. In a sense, Trump is four. Yeah, I know. Duke is. <laughs> so, um, so wait, one, two, three, four, five is Stanford, Chicago, Yale, Duke, Harvard. Harvard. That's correct. Harvard. Harvard is now the Duke of the North. Is that what you're telling me? If you, those are your words. In a sense. <laughs> How did this happen? Yeah, I think it's a much more interesting question than why is Stanford number one is why is Duke ahead of Harvard? And not to drone on too much about our methodology and philosophy behind how we put this together, but I think it's worth visiting a little bit. Five years ago, and this is the fifth time we've done this, which kind of blows my mind. I don't know about you. And we sat around the corner at this Mexican restaurant and <laughs> concocted this sort of scheme we kind of staked out what almost amounts to an ideological position, and that was the only thing that matters is outcomes, employment right. outcomes. We don't care about any inputs. We don't care about LSATs. We don't care about grade point average. We don't care about how much you spend on library books. We don't care about any of that. We just simply care, we don't care about, about professorial scholarship. Some might say it's a cynical position, but we treat law schools as trade schools. Like The point of going to law school is to get a job as a lawyer. Now, this infuriates many people in the legal academy, but you know, if they s would stop charging hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars for their uh, educational offerings, then perhaps we would take a different stance. But just the <laughs> economics of the legal job market and the sheer cost of law school, really, we don't feel like we have any other choice and that we're doing um, our readers a disservice if we, if we take any other kind of approach. So why a school is a certain place in our sort of ordinal list is a function of how they do in terms of employment outcomes. And the reason Stanford's number one is because of all the schools we looked at, Stanford had the second highest employment score. And what we mean by that is we take the school's self-reported employment statistics, the ABA, and strip out everything that we think is sort of dubious or unverifiable or, you know, not uh, falling under what we define as under the rubric of real lawyer jobs. We're only talking about full-time bar passage required positions. No so-called JD advantage, no solos, no school-funded jobs, none of that, no part-time anything. And Stanford and Chicago and Duke do um, a lot better than that, perhaps, than people think. Duke, well, I don't know what people think, but Duke did the best of anyone. They had, it was north of 90% and Stanford was second. I mean, that accounts for Duke's being above Harvard in our list. We're not also not saying that you should go to Duke rather than Harvard because of our list. You know, this is... So that's a whole different kind of that's stupid. That's a whole different kind of stupid, exactly. <laughs> I mean, Harvard was fifth last year in our rankings too. Yeah, I mean, this, yeah. Is, this is about where they are based on how we think about these things. Yeah. Um, and look, as I said, I believe last year, as I was defending them last year, um, obviously the point of this list is not saying people at Harvard are not getting jobs. 
But for the specific kind of jobs that we're talking about, they're not placing in those jobs quite as well as some other schools. They're still placing very, very well. And, you know, there are lots of reasons for that. You know, um, a Harvard student might go into a long-term bar passage required um, job. They also have opportunities to do a lot of other stuff. And because we're talking about very small distinctions here, you know, if five Harvard kids decide that, all right, this is the year that we're all going to go, whatever, start our own company in Alaska. Um, that has nothing to do with law school, but, you know, that's what we want to do. That can bump a school on these percentages a little bit. I, I think that's exactly right. Um, I think that the sort of the top 15 or so of our rankings is fairly stable. No one sort of moves more than two or three places typically. But what's interesting about our list is farther down the list. 60% of our formula is the employment score, which I just tried to describe, and then something what we call a quality job score, which is percentage of graduates placed in the best paying law firms, as well as in uh, federal clerkships. Right. Um, so essentially, we double count certain kinds of jobs. And again, the reasons we do so are economic reasons, because those are the jobs that give you the best or most plausible path toward paying down your debt burden. It's the bimodal salary distribution curve kind of represented in ranking form. Precisely. Um, so who down the list, uh, Joe, who down the list do you find uh, interesting that's there that people wouldn't necessarily think would be there? Um, think would be there? Uh, I don't know about that. I guess, I guess Penn State, who was not even in our top 50 last year, is 27 now. That strikes me as a surprise. Yeah, well, that, they, they finally got rid of Paterno, so that yeah, helped. yeah, right. <laughs> There's a, and also um, Georgia, Georgia um, State, right? Well, Georgia no. State. Well, cost is another factor. So, an institution like Georgia State, which has a very good employment outcomes, at least in relative terms, does really well because of relative cost by our measure. So, Georgia State does really well. Georgia, but UGA, like straight up UGA is jumped, really jumped high. Jumped five year. places into the top 20. And we'd love to attribute that to some sort of Sally Yates effect, but that unfortunately isn't true. But nevertheless, um, <laughs> it's too early for that to ripple down. Yeah. Other schools that uh, did well towards the top, Wash U went up five spots. A little farther down the list where things are a little more fluid, Seton Hall went up 11 places. Uh, Illinois went up 10, I see. And Illinois went up 10. And again, this is. Down in this neighborhood, this is a pure function of employment outcomes. You know, the percentage of Scottish clerkships and federal judiciary penetration and all these other factors that we have are, are largely irrelevant once you get out of the top 10, 12 schools. I mean, if you look at a school like Georgia versus a school like Duke, because that's just what we were talking about, our rankings say that if you go to either Duke or Georgia, you're going to be in a good position. But the key is either. Right. And I think that a lot of people tend to think of Duke as like one kind of school and Georgia as a completely different kind of school. And our rankings are trying to show that's not necessarily the case. If you get into, you know, as we were, you know, from our decision podcast, it's a situation where if you get into Duke costing you 100% and you get into Georgia with a full ride or a 50% ride, Georgia's a really good option. And I don't know that everybody uh, uh, gets that. Yeah. Sure. I mean, it it's really less about the institution than about the applicant. And, you know, what Ellie said is exactly right. They're both great places, but there's so many variables that go into each individual case that um, without knowing that, it's hard to make a recommendation one direction or the other. Obviously, Duke has a little bit larger of a national brand and probably has a little bit more national reach in terms of employers, but there may be reasons to go the other direction. We, just, we, we, can't, we can't just say because of some ordinal list that uh, one is necessarily better than the other. 
cost cuts both ways, though. And I think when you, the other thing that people notice when they look at our list are the schools that underperform. And certainly, I think consistently, our list um, shows kind of an underperformance relative to U.S. news for the big New York schools. Well, that's really just all about cost. If you look at the cost figures for NYU and Columbia, which really just kind of get killed by us, nothing personal. It's just that the cost of living locally here is just so disproportionately high that um, if we use cost as a factor and we feel that we have to, then uh, they suffer. The fact that they do as well as they do just show how strong they are across the board elsewhere. Right. You guys both went to law school in New York. How did you guys manage your cost of living while you were while you were here? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, I a little sl- action on the side. I slept in the park. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I lived in the dorms for the two years that I could, and then I managed to secure an apartment around the corner from the law school for my third year, which was very impressive, and it was cheap because it was um, awful. So. <laughs> There were there were mice. Actually, the, the mouse problem was so bad that at one point I got a knock on my door from like the health inspector saying, there's a mouse problem here. And I was like, okay. And they were like blaming me. And I was like, yeah. it's not my, I yeah. don't want there to be mice. I, perhaps we should begin from a different yeah. premise. It's not like I'm raising these things. Yeah. I don't want them here. Why are you bothering me? Yeah. Go Go do something about them. I also had a pronounced uh, rodent problem in my uh, accommodations during law school, which were in a part of Brooklyn that is now quite expensive and fashionable, but at the time right. was obscure and depressing yeah. and very far away from where I needed to go up towards Columbus Circle. So so these are the kinds of things, I think, that that push down the New York law schools um, in our list. And again, I'm kind of uh, proud is not exactly the right word. I am happy that that is reflected somewhere. Right, that if you go to Georgia, you're probably going to not be living with mice. Yeah. Um, and if you're trying to go to NYU on a cost efficient basis, um, you very well might be. That's something that students don't think they're going to care about before they go to law school, but turns out is part of the suite of concerns. Yeah. Yeah. Columbia, NYU, obviously. Berkeley, also similar issues. Surprised Stanford isn't hit by that, but. Well, this goes to kind of a, a different problem of just how elite your Stanford's and and, yeah. and Harvard's and Yale's are. I mean, there there was a we had a conversation, Brian, about should we even include Yale on the list at all? Because it's it, such, it is such an it's such a unicorn, yeah, right. It's a, it's such a strange place, and everyone acknowledges that it is by far the most difficult school to get into, and it performs, you know, extraordinarily well by our measure, but. You know, give me a break. If most, almost every case you get into Yale, you're going to go to Yale. But their job score in relative terms is mediocre. It's probably at around 75% compared to 85 plus for the school sort of in its, in its weight class. But I mean, that's because the options that people coming out of that place have. You know, a lot of law school deans like to talk about the proverbial, you know, JD Advantage McKinsey consultant or what have you, which is largely nonsense. But in the case of Yale, it's it's a true thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. um, becoming so, the prime so, minister of a small nation is not really captured. Yeah, in that's the, exactly right. They're, in that, but that is what the Yale grads do. All over <laughs> all over the map, highly it's just it's a peculiar institution on this list. And we have some conversations internally about just excluding them because they kind of they just don't fit. They unbalance the rest. Yeah. Last question for me. Give us a little bracket buster. Who was who was the last one out? 
Because our rankings just look at the top 50. There, there's a reason. Oh, oh that, this is a good one. Yeah, there's a reason why we only look at the top yeah. 50. We, we're trying generally to think about national law schools or schools that are going to have punch outside of just their region. So there might be a really good school that's really uh, uh, useful in their region but doesn't really have national pull that usually wouldn't make our top 50. So who's, who's 51? Well, 51, I'm not sure if they, if they meet your criteria that you just outlined of a regional Player, the 51st school is USC. <laughs> Sorry. <no. laughs> USC is always... They're right, always right, right on the bubble. There. They're right on the bubble. And for whatever reason, they just haven't... There's no mystery to this. It's just, it's just because of the data points that we've decided upon and the way we apportion them. There's, and that's the answer. That's a school that's getting hit because of cost. Yeah. Because sure. um, USC is is really expensive relative to yeah. the national places, um, and yet their I mean their employment scores are good, but they're but I think USC perfectly fits in terms of an employment score that's great, but it's great within California, it's great yeah. within on the West Coast. I wouldn't feel great about running with my USC degree if I had to go get a job in Texas, in the same way that I would feel if I had my Stanford degree. Right, right. Wearing your Matt Liner T-shirt. Yeah. To- <laughs> we can have a larger conversation about yeah. why we're trying to get a job in Texas. Yeah. But. All right. Well, this is interesting. Now, if you're listening to this through any kind of your subscription to us service or your podcasting downloaded service, then you don't have advantage of this. But if you're listening to this on the embedded podcast that's within our post on this, then, uh, well, then you're reading the rankings right now. So you could have followed along. If you aren't, go to Above the Law and read the rankings so you can follow along with this discussion probably something i should have said uh, beforehand but you should, but you should just re-listen to this podcast because why not i'm sure you are interested in hearing our insights a second time uh <laughs> if you aren't subscribed to us though you should be because that way you get to download it every time we come out with a new episode you should give us stars on your you know your review process and write reviews and those things will help us be visible to more people because the algorithm pushes us up when people search law for a podcast we're higher up if we have more reviews so that's a good thing for you to do listen to the legal talk network app Uh, their app has all us as well as all the other legal talk network offerings read above the law obviously twitter i'm at joseph patrice you're at lenyc that's pretty much everything i gotta say anything else no thanks for coming by brian thanks guys all right peace If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.